Saul has been Israel's king, and Saul is abandoned by God who called him to be king and by Samuel who anointed him as king, and something different happens. And so, hear the word of the Lord. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, use your servants' lips, your people's ears and hearts, that as they are joined together today, the seed of your word might be planted and brought forth with a resurrection joy. 
Amen and Amen. It's a major change in the history of Israel. First, Israel had gone from a people ruled by judges to having a king. And Saul was the king. But Saul's disobedience meant that both Samuel, who had anointed him, and God, who had chosen him, were displeased with him. And a new king was then called for. And our text today describes how that new king came to be. First of all, let's look for a moment at the geography here. This is all taking place in a rather small amount of space. We have Bethlehem, we have Gibeah and Ramah and Gilgal, and it's right up here on the northwestern shore of the Dead Sea. You see Jerusalem is there kind of in the middle. And if you look at the legend, that's about 10 miles. So we're talking maybe 10 miles from Bethlehem to Ramah and maybe 15 miles from Ramah to Gilgal. All of this is not necessarily a day trip for somebody on foot, but neither is it the other side of the world. It's not necessarily a trip you'd want to make if it was 115 degrees outside, but it also was not a once-in-a-lifetime kind of journey. This has taken place. Samuel is living there, and Saul is living there, and then there is Jesse and the sons of Jesse who are, who are all living within 25 miles of one another. So the geography here is not an extreme from Montana to New Hampshire or anything like that. The geography is actually quite reasonable and quite reasonably um, traveled. But one thing we find out is that the town of Bethlehem plays prominently in the choice of David as king. Now, Bethlehem is one of those places that shows up again and again in the Bible. It shows up in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Bethlehem is the home of Naomi and her husband and her sons. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. So in the uh, Old Testament, in that particular area, the house of bread, like the super Walmart of the day, like a shopping center where you can go and, and get food. This is where the food the storehouses are probably found in the house of bread in Bethlehem. Well, Naomi leaves because there's a famine in the land. And the house of bread becomes the house of nothingness. So Naomi goes, and she goes over to Moab. And Naomi's two sons, a translation of their names, something like puny and pitiful, <laughs> While they're over in, in Moab, her sons and her husband die and she is left alone and she's got two daughters-in-law because her sons have married and Ruth and Orpah are, we want to go back with you to Bethlehem. We've heard that the bread has returned. There is lehem again in the bet. We, we want to go back. And Naomi shakes her head and says, no, you should stay here. There's, there's hope for you. There's not hope for me. And Ruth says, I am going with you. I don't care what you say. And so Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem, where, as we know, Ruth finds a husband and has a child. 
Bethlehem is the birthplace of Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the grandfather of David. So Bethlehem comes to us through the book of Ruth, and it comes to us as the hometown of David the king and David's family. And David becomes, in the Old Testament, the ideal king in Israel's history. That's not to say that David was a perfect man. We all know better. We all know that David let the power get to his head. We all know that in the spring when kings go off to war, David didn't go off but sent his army without him and stayed home and got himself in a bit of trouble. And when he got himself in a bit of trouble and tried to cover up for it, he got himself into more trouble. And he was never quite the same after that. But nonetheless, David, for various reasons, is seen as the ideal king in Israel's history. Can't you picture it? Samuel, the seer. Now, everybody's kind of scared of Samuel. You notice he shows up in Bethlehem. If Samuel shows up, you don't really know why he's shown up. So the elders of the city come out and they say, wait a minute. Are you going to do something to embarrass us, to hurt us? Are you, are, are you bringing good news or bad news? Do you come peaceably or not? Samuel says, I come peaceably. And so he goes and he prepares this great meal. And as he prepares this great meal, here he is and he's looking at Jesse's sons. He knows that among this population, there is going to be someone who is going to be king over Israel And he sees, first of all, Eliab. He says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before him. And the Lord's anointed does not stand before him. He goes one by one through all the seven of the sons of Jesse who were there. And finally, he's like, none of these are being called. Do you have any more? Well, there's the little guy. The youngest, he's out in the field with the sheep. He's the shepherd. Now, a thousand years in Bethlehem's history, in just about a thousand B.C., we've got Jesse and his family, and we've got David, the shepherd king. Fast forward a thousand years to Jesus born in Bethlehem and we have the king who says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep listen to my voice. And so there's the geography, the geography of Bethlehem. The birthplace of David, the birthplace of the descendant of David, the Davidic Messiah. There's also the political sphere. Now make no mistake, Samuel knows what he's getting into. The Lord says to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Get to work. Fill your horn. Set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. 
Now, Samuel gets it. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, and the Lord gives him the pretense. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel knows that if he goes and describes how he is going to anoint a new king over Israel, it's going to be problematic. We see a thousand years later how this is problematic. The wise men, I prefer to call them magi, because if they were really all that wise, they would have known that it was a terrible idea to go to Herod and say to Herod, we're here to worship the newborn king, sir. And Herod says, wait a minute, I'm king. And I haven't had any babies recently. What are you talking about? Why don't you go and find this so-called king and send me the GPS coordinates and I'll have a drone fly over and see see what happens afterwards. Samuel knows what he's getting himself into. Samuel knows he is committing high treason. Samuel knows that... Once the oil has been poured on David's head, he's a wanted man. And the months and the years ahead are going to take on a character that no one ever imagined. So there's the geography of Bethlehem. There's the the politics of who is king. And there's also the spiritual reality. The spiritual reality has to do with disobedience and God's pleasure. First of all, it has to do with Saul's disobedience. When Samuel is upbraiding Saul, he says, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? who told you not to take plunder from the spoil of war? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? We find out what God would have preferred. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is no less a sin than divination. And stubbornness is no less a sin than iniquity and idolatry. Because you rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king. Saul's disobedience brings an end to what he had hoped would be his own dynasty. But there's something about David. David has his problems. We understand that he has his problems. And his problems are, in many ways, probably bigger than yours or mine. But there is something about David. The Bible describes it this way. Samuel says to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Now one thing about the book of 1 Samuel. 
the chronology of the book of 1 Samuel is problematic. That's putting it lightly. Scholars will, will tell you that the book of Samuel seems to be in a lot of different pieces that are not necessarily arranged chronologically. So we find here in chapter 15, we find Samuel upbraiding Saul. And we also find the same thing if we rewind back to chapter 13 where he says, your kingdom will not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him to be ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul is disobedient, but there's something about David, the man after God's own heart, the musician the warrior, the one who seeks the Lord. We find out that it's more than just what is on the outside. Now, we see how this turned out when you're just looking on the outside with Saul. If you're looking for a king who looks like a king, Saul looks like a king. Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. He stood head and shoulders above everyone else, and we see how that turned out. Samuel almost makes the same mistake in chapter 16. When they came, the sons of Jesse, he looked on Eliab and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord says, Don't look on his appearance or his height. Unspoken is, Think about Saul. I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as mortals see. Men and women look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And finally, when David comes in, we find out that David's not exactly a troll. He can, he can hold his own. He sent and brought David in, and David was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. For this is the one. Friends, God looks on the inner person. We see this. The Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Rewind until last week. The text from last week reminds us we don't lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. There is an outward form. Is there the inward reality? Here's what Jesus says. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful. The marble shines but inside they are full of the bones of the dead and all kinds of filth. 
in almost any town, one of the most beautiful places you can go is you know, the main cemetery of the town. As large as cemeteries are, they have ancient trees growing in there, and there's an old part of the cemetery, and usually you get to the, to the newer parts of the cemetery. It's just so calm and peaceful, and they tend to be kind of off to themselves. And if you're a walker or a runner, they have, they have pavement, generally speaking, but don't take a shovel. Because how beautiful it is on the top and on the exterior, there's something beneath. Jesus says to the Pharisees and the scribes, you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look like you've got it all together. On the outside, people think you are holy, but on the inside, your heart is rotten. Your motives are wrong. You are nothing like what God intends for you to be. The inner person. God has come not just to save us, but to transform us. God has come not just to rescue us from hell, but to make our hearts reflections of God's hearts. God has come to make us new on the inside to transform us so that through our obedience to Him the world may be a different place. So the inner person and the obedient person are characters that are talked about, character traits that are talked about in our Old Testament lesson Saul doesn't want to admit what he's done. Saul, you know, Saul would prefer to think about all of the ways that he can make an excuse for what he's done. And so Saul actually responds to Samuel and says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission that the Lord sent me on. And I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But from the spoil, people did take sheep and cattle, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to, sa- to, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Saul makes excuses. He has done what God instructed him not to do, but... He makes excuses for why it shouldn't matter. And Samuel, once again, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obedience to the voice of the Lord? Surely, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. What does Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Later on in the New Testament, Peter and the apostles are are telling the story of Jesus. And people say, hush, will you stop talking? Will you just hush and get out of here? And Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than any human authority and what we get is a shift in history we've had the shift from the judges 
to a king. And now we have the shift from the king who is disobedient to David who is somehow, in spite of his flaws, somehow a man with whom God will work. And Samuel takes the horn of oil and engages in treason. He anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and he went home. So what do we get from this? Here's what we can get. Number one is be serious about obedience. God has not called us to tip our hats toward obedience. God has not called us to be obedient people on Sunday, but to take our cues for right and wrong from whatever political party we belong to or whatever television station we find our favorite. Be serious about obedience means to ask what God would have us be and who God would have us seek and where God would have us go. Our attitude toward God's call on our lives has got to be more than casual. Our attitude toward obeying God has got to be more than, well, maybe sometimes. Be serious about obedience to God. Be God's through and through. Not just on the outside. Not just what people see when they look at you on Sunday or Wednesday night. Be God's through and through. Entirely, fully, holy. No matter what the outward appearance is, the inward reality is far more significant. Are you God's inside and out? And know the Spirit. Know the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. The God who calls us is the God who equips us, not just with instructions, not just with pleasant feelings, but God equips us with Himself. The third person of the Trinity. He's with us. He's in us. He's among us. Know the Spirit. As soon as the oil was poured out on David in the presence of his brothers, the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him from that day forward. Dear friends, live in the Spirit. Live in the Spirit knowing that obedience to God is that which God wants from you, from me. That the inner life of holiness and wholeness, that's what God wants from you and from me. And God doesn't leave us on our own. But God gives us the power of Himself, the Holy Spirit. He's in us, He's beside us, He guides us. He holds us. 
He gives us the power to say yes when all the rest of the world says no. And he gives us the power to say no when all the rest of the world says yes. Is this how you're living? Are you living seriously obediently? Are you God's through and through, inside and out? And do you know the gift of the Spirit? The gift of God Himself present in your life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.